Good afternoon and welcome to a very special Canucks talk. I am Thomas Drance. I'll be driving the bus today. Jamie Dodd out with illness. He'll be back on the program soon. We're coming to you live as always, of course, from the Kintech studio. This is the Kintech mobile studio as I, of course, am on the road in Toronto. Kintech footwear and orthotics is Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. So this is a special show. Me alone on the mic, but don't worry, I've brought in reinforcements. We'll be joined today, first of all, at 12.30 by former Canucks president and general manager Mike Gillis to discuss Roberto Luongo, Henrik Sedin, Daniel Sedin, all going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's Hall of Fame weekend in Toronto this weekend, culminating, of course, with their formal induction on Monday. And so Gillis is going to come join us, chat about some of the best teams in Vancouver Canucks history. A welcome bomb, a distraction from the state of the current team. At 1 p.m., we'll be joined by none other than Sportsnet's Dan Murphy, the best in the business. Always thrilled to have Dan on the show. Uh, and this might be the first time we've had Dan on the show. And... Uh, but thrilled to be joined by Dan. We'll talk about what's going on around the club, but we'll also talk about Luongo and the Twins. And then at 1.30, the PDO report will be joined by Dim Filipovich to preview the week ahead. Over the course of this first segment, however, you're just going to be with me. Feel free to ask me any questions, but you know, if you're listening, that I can rant all day, especially after a Canucks performance like that one. Nonetheless... If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, if you'd like to tell me I'm wrong or guide me in one direction or another, feel free to hit me up at 650-650. That's the Dun Dunbar Lumber text line. And of course, Dunbar Lumber is the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver and visit it, them online at Dunbar, oh my goodness, DunbarLumber.com. Woo! Jamie would be making so much fun of me. Were he on the show today? All right. Let's get to a brutal Canucks performance on hollowed hockey, ha oh, hallowed hockey ground in Montreal last night. The Bell Center. The Vancouver Canucks went up against the rebuilding Montreal Canadiens. Although, we should note, and I didn't do this in my piece, but I, I want to note. The Montreal Canadiens, sharing a trait of the Vancouver Canucks are similarly reluctant to call what they are doing a rebuild, even though it is, of course, a rebuild. Let me read you this quote from Kent Hughes from late September, before the start of the season. The reason I don't like to choose a label is because I think people can put different connotations on what a rebuild means versus a reset or a retool. To me, they're just words. It's really about trying to accomplish something, which is how we go about building something that we can keep together and sustain like other teams have done. Here's the fact of the matter. If you're making as many draft picks as the Montreal Canadiens are, right? If you're trading players like Tyler Toffoli on attractive deals for first-round picks and, and using that cap space elsewhere like the Montreal Canadiens are doing, if you're acquiring Sean Monaghan and getting a first-round pick in the process like the Montreal Canadiens are doing, you can call it what you like. It's a rebuild. Likewise, when you're the Vancouver Canucks and you're out here extending 29-year-old players and shopping aggressively in free agency for forwards, and trading draft picks for depth reinforcements, doesn't matter what ages they are, right? You're rebuilt. You're not rebuilding. <laughs> you're, you're, you might not be all in. You're, at least you're holding your 
first, but you're very much not in any sort of forward-looking state. And that's the contrast that I couldn't help but dwell on. And I wrote a column to this effect. You can read it, of course, at theathletic.com, where I am a contributor. If you look at the contrast between these two teams, which basically hired management groups a year apart, it couldn't be sharper. And I, I had this sense, like, you know, a, a Dr. Strangelove-esque sense watching these teams. Like, why, why would you be afraid, organizationally speaking, of going through a process like the Montreal Canadiens are going through right now? Like, why? They're fun. They're fast. They've got some interesting characters. They've got some good young players. Their young players play consistent minutes night after night. And the market's responding. Montreal Canadiens fans feel like they're on a journey with a young team that, guess what? They don't have any expectations for. And they shouldn't. For all that the Montreal Canadiens demolished Vancouver, who played a really careless game of hockey on Wednesday night in Montreal, the Canucks still outplayed them in a lot of ways. I know the scoreline doesn't reflect it, but in a lot of ways, the Canucks were A, two posts hit on a power play away from really being in that one, and two, at 5-on-5 five five in terms of the flow of play, honestly, were not as overmatched as it looked on the scoreboard. Some really porous goaltending for the first time. Now, I don't know that Demko was as bad either as the numbers made it look, but he certainly wasn't good. You'd, you'd want him to stop that Nick Suzuki shot at the very least and keep it 2 nothing after the first period. Um, I don't think he was as bad, again, as the save percentage numbers suggest, but he definitely wasn't good enough. And for the first time in a long time, I, I really did find myself wondering... Is this the game that Demko's cost them? You know? Nonetheless, I don't know when you think about it all around that Vancouver was as poor as it felt like watching the game live. And the reason it felt so bad was the nature of the errors that led to Montreal's goals. Right? So you get the... <laughs> you get the... First goal, which comes off of a brutal Tanner Pearson penalty. He takes two offensive zone penalties in that game for his seventh and eighth minors of the year. Incredible numbers for a guy who's tended to be pretty disciplined. You wonder what's going on there. Now, he's injured at the moment. Bruce Boudreaux said he's day-to-day, -day, suggested pretty strongly that he won't practice tomorrow. Uh, no, Boudreaux didn't suggest this, but reading between the lines, it sounds like Tanner Pearson won't practice tomorrow, probably in doubt to play on Saturday in Toronto. But Pearson, I mean, one thing you got to say about him, he, he before this year, he tended to be a pretty disciplined, like honest, workmanlike defensive forward. And you wonder when a guy's penalty rates change significantly. Like it's always something I used to watch for. On the opposite, I used to watch for how often a guy draws penalties and use it as a proxy for how active they are around the puck, uh, a sign of aging or a sign of injury, right? There's a few numbers that I look at, underlying data that I, tended, that I tend to sort of regard as things that if they drop off significantly from a guy's career norms tend to indicate something material or something physical about their health status or the aging process or their aging curves 
Tanner Pearson taking a lot of penalties this year. That worries me, considering the two years left on his deal, where his where he's at in terms of his aging curve, and how tough the minutes that Tanner Pearson's played over the course of his career are. Nonetheless, it was a really bad penalty. I don't. I didn't think it was a great call either. I want to note, but there's nothing you can do when you're at a full stretch stick extended like that. Like that's going to get called. That's elementary. It gets called. It's a, it's a Nick Suzuki shot from a spot on the power play where he's very, very dangerous. The goal beats Thatcher Demko and it's one nothing. We're off to the races. The next one, it's a deflection. It's off of a faceoff loss. Whatever. Those things happen. 2 nothing, 2 nothing. you'd think, hey, okay, that's a bad start. That's a bad start, a bad penalty. They score on the power play. Canucks PK really needs to figure it out. But, you know, whatever. You can come back from 2 nothing easily in this league. Easily. And then there's the JT Miller, like, I don't even know what it was. The giveaway, point-blank range, Kirby Dock goes through Demko, boom, 3 nothing, and the game is afoot. The, the route is on. And the Canucks fail to build momentum off of a big comeback win in Ottawa, in which, truth be told, like, they were worse. They were worse in the game they won in Ottawa than they were last night against Montreal. Period. Period. The, the performance on Tuesday especially the first period, had Ottawa not been so wasteful with their opportunities, just missing empty nets. Just a... <laughs> that, that was a worse performance for me. But it doesn't change the fact that on the heels of Jim Rutherford's commentary, pointed commentary about this team's structure, this club has laid two eggs. Now, they went 500. They took two of four points. But they've laid two eggs performance-wise. They've done very little to disabuse anyone in this market of any of the notions that Rutherford planted with that hit with Dan and Sat on Sportsnet 650 on Monday evening. So what does it mean? I mean, what does it really mean for the Canucks? Bruce Boudreaux post-game talked about consistency. Players post-game, you know, it was Bo Horvat, it was Elias Pettersson. Uh, Jack Rathbone came out to talk to Ian McIntyre. Demko wasn't made available. They did their best. You don't get a sense of anger from them. You looked at the mistakes, you looked at the form this week, and it was hard to feel anything other than, you know, feel like there's something a little bit broken, just a little bit broken here with this group at the moment. And yet my analytical brain, right, looks at this team and thinks, okay, they're worse than I've expected. <laughs> they've, they've performed worse than even I thought they would to open the season. How much of that is real? How much of that is fake? Where is this team really from a true talent basis? Because I think it's important to know where you are before you go about making suggestions about what should come next. This is a really important thing, a really important process for management to get right, particularly because for all that they faded, this team's accomplishments after Bruce Boudreaux took over last season and what they did, you know, winning at 106 point pace over the last, 57 games of the season. Despite all of that, management doubled down on this team. So they can say that they didn't believe in what they were seeing, that too much of it was on the goalie, but their actions suggest that, hey, they thought they were at least a fringe playoff team. They thought they had a shot at making the playoffs with this group. That shot is not dead by any means, but it is more remote as a result of the hole this team has dug itself. More than that, it's remote because this team's penalty kill is genuinely appalling. 
with no real sense of how it can turn around, aside from their goaltenders becoming what they were last season. But their five-on-five form is actually bad. Like, actually worse than I would have thought. Worse than it was last year, both under Travis Green and under Boudreaux. They are not doing enough, consistently enough, to carry play the way a winning team has to in this league. If you're not consistent, you need to be lucky. And no one gets that lucky for that long in a league as tough, as rigorously difficult as the National Hockey League. Period. Period. There are things in Vancouver's profile that I think are going to crash back to earth. In, in both positives and a negative sense. Thatcher Demko hasn't been good. He definitely wasn't good in Montreal on Wednesday night. He's not alone on the list of culprits, though. It's not like you could just point to Demko and exonerate four or five of his teammates who had, you know, two goals, two Kirby Doc goals uh, created off the forecheck. One, a really bad giveaway. The other, uh, you know, one of the Canucks defensemen overpowered by Cole Caulfield. It's not all on him. But the good thing for Vancouver, if you want to say that, if you want to think about it this way, is that Jodemko's really good. We haven't really seen him struggle like this, with the exception of those five or six games that he played after Jacob Markstrom got hurt toward the end of the 2019-20 season, before it got scrubbed in the regular season anyway for the pandemic. We haven't really seen him struggle for this type of stretch in the NHL yet. And we haven't really seen him struggle in the AHL for this type of stretch yet. He definitely didn't struggle like this in college. All of that points to a goalie who's really good, who's going to probably be an awful lot better in his remaining starts than he has been to this point. If he's elite over those starts, then Vancouver's going to look more like the team we thought we were going to see. Now, not necessarily good enough, but certainly an awful lot better than this. Certainly pushing, despite their brutal start for 90-ish points, High 80s point totals at the end of the year. I believe that. I believe that Thatcher Demko is going to sort this out. He's too good not to. He's too good not to. That's not to exonerate him for the way he's played. That's not to excuse him for having ducked more media obligations in 14 games than Roberto Luongo ever did in 17 years. It's just to point out that Demko's really good at stopping pucks. He hasn't been to this point. He will likely be going forward. But he also wouldn't be the first goalie to have an elite season, have an average season, and then the next year be elite again. That that happens. It's a really hard position. It's a rare goaltender who is great year after year, consistently, night after night, a marathon runner, as Roberto Luongo explicitly thinks of it. Right? He thought of himself as a marathon runner. Stable. Game in, game out. That's why he's going into the Hall of Fame on Monday. Because he was that. Demko might not be. We don't know yet. He hasn't played enough games for us to say with certainty. But I think we know he's better than this. And once this team starts getting saves, they're going to start winning more games. Is that good enough? No, it's not. It's not. Rutherford is right when he talks about this team needing to lean an awful lot less on their goalie. He's right. What Demko and, to a lesser extent, Martin, have shown us here is what this team looks like with average goaltending. Lots of teams go through stretches where your goaltender is bad or not great. 
or is just getting unlucky. Every deflection, finding the back of the net. Every giveaway isn't turned away. This league's hard. These shooters are unbelievable. This stuff happens. The mark of a really good team, the mark of a playoff team, the mark of a durable, contending team, is that a run like this from your goalie doesn't cost you the season. A run where Quinn Hughes looks like he's still maybe battling some injury the way they, that he looked in the first five games that he played. And, and honestly, I still, I still just don't see the pop in his skating stride that I'm used to, to be totally honest with you. On a really good team, you weather that storm. You go 500 at least, 550. You stay in the race. And when things start going in your favor, that's when you're really eat. That's when you're 750, 800. That's when you pile up the points. That's when you put together weeks of fun, exciting, winning hockey. It's a long season. An 82-game NHL season is like a conveyor belt designed to test individuals and teams. And in the early part of this season, in the, as they've stepped onto this conveyor belt, onto this treadmill, they face-planted. They face they've got thrown against the wall behind the treadmill. That's what it's looked like. That doesn't happen to good teams. Here's the other thing that's more concerning that's going to come back to earth for the Canucks. Last night in, in Montreal, they had the balance of chances. They, they outchanced the Montreal Canadiens. And for a moment there on the power play, even though Bo Horvat and some of their, their most useful stuff wasn't really working, five on four, right? When this power play is at its best, Bo Horvat is deeply involved. Last night, even on the sequence where they hit two, two posts, perimeter, sh perimeter shots, perimeter work, right? This team has been scoring at a dizzying rate, and I'm nervous, really nervous, that we're going to see a lot more games like we saw in Montreal. The Canucks outchanced the Habs, but they didn't generate enough, not nearly enough, in terms of high-quality looks. Sam Montembeau, who I worked with in Florida and know pretty well, and I'm happy to see him doing so well this season— he outperformed Demko last, last night. He's outperformed Demko on the balance of the season. There's no amount of money you could have bet me <laughs> where I would have taken that prior to the season, right? I, I, this happens. Goaltending is variable. They didn't make his night nearly difficult enough. Not nearly difficult enough. Their forecheck wasn't direct until Niels Hoaglander started playing more minutes late in the third. Um, uh, you know, aside from Brock Besser getting inside on, on his opponents on a regular basis. Like, Brock Besser for me was Brock Besser and Niels Hoaglander were Vancouver's best forwards. I know everyone's going to be mad. Oh, of course, Drance thinks that. I do. I do. I didn't think there was much going on for anyone else five on five. Besser's at least going to hard areas, trying to get on a groove. Niels Hoaglander was at least creative, right? He set up a really neat scoring chance with a one-touch backhand pass off the wall uh, that Montembeau stopped. He set up Vancouver's second goal, scored it. He both set up the pass that led to the rebound and scored it. I, I, there wasn't enough there offensively for the Vancouver Canucks. And this has actually been a theme. It's hidden because this team's converting on almost 10% of their shots five on five. 13% of their shots overall. They're one of the luckiest finishing teams in the league. So we're seeing this team that looks like they're defensively porous and offensively gifted. High octane. They're not. It's worse than that. They're actually really mediocre. They're really average. They're really average 
And over the length of the season, as the percentages normalize, we're going to see a team that actually struggles to score more than they should, despite all of the one-shot scoring talent lined up and down this roster. And we're going to see their goaltenders, goaltenders play better. We're going to see Demko start to steal games, weeks, months worth, in my opinion, over the balance of the season. And as both of those things happen, what really concerns me, what really concerns me about the Canucks is they're just going to be below average. They're just going to be below average. That's what this team is. It's built of defenders who can't move the puck sufficiently and forwards that can't defend well enough. That's personnel. The structural element, oh, that's there too. And you could see it. They look disorganized in that first period in Montreal. That's tough. Bruce Boudreaux knows how to win games in the regular season in the NHL. Bruce Boudreaux is a very good coach. But at some point, if Tanner Pearson takes an early penalty for the eighth time this season, he can't stay on your first line. At some point, if JT Miller has a giveaway like that, he's back on the wing. At some point, the minutes that the young players on this team are playing need to be managed consistently. Jack Rathbone made a mistake. It was a youthful mistake on, on the Mike Hoffman goal, the fourth goal that Ottawa scored. You have to be able to live with that when you're a team that hasn't made the playoffs in three years. You have to be able to live with that when you're a team like the Canucks. But the Canucks can't live with that because of the work done to support this group. That's a problem. That's one of those moments where this team's reality and the reality of the steps taken to build it are in conflict. They've been in conflict for 10 years. It's why this team's so middling. So middling. Even as the team's that have rebuilt around them, been their peers over the past few years, ease their way up the standings with hope to burn in the years ahead. And Canucks fans are left watching this team play uninspired, careless, lackadaisical hockey. And they know in this market, they know that this might be the best this group ever is. Because of the limited cap flexibility, because of the limited prospect pool, because all of those things that I say every day, because they're no less true today than they were when I started saying them. And it's important. It's important that this be grasped, imbibed, processed, both among these, the fans in our market, but also among by the organization. This stuff matters. The fundamentals matter. Both on the ice and in terms of your hockey holdings, in terms of big picture hockey strategy. A lot can change in 12 months. 12 months ago, I was in that same arena watching the Habs. The day they announced that Jeff Gordon was joining the team as the head of hockey operations, it was 75 days ago. Uh, 375 days ago, excuse me. And since then, they completely dismantled a team just months off of being in a cup final. And they built this. And you know what? This looks pretty good. This looks like a lot more fun than what the Canucks are doing. It's focused, it's scrappy, it's likable, and it's consistent. You know you're getting an honest effort from the Habs every night. This Canucks team hasn't shown us that. They haven't. And if you're not consistent, what are you? In professional sports, nothing. I'm sorry. It's just what it is. It's just the truth of the matter. 
All right, that's my sh that's my segment one opening rant. Get your feedback in, 650-650. That's the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll read some of your texts after we chat with Mike Gillis on the second segment. You're listening to Sportsnet 650. Hello and welcome back to Canucks Talk. I'm Thomas Drance. Jamie Dodd, of course, not joining us today. He'll be back with me soon. All right. Everyone's fired up. I'm a little fired up, but you know that about me. I'm fired up on any day that ends with Y. And twice on Sundays. I don't know if you guys knew that. Twice on Sundays. That's because I'm often freaking out about my fantasy football results. <laughs> All right. Let's let's waste no time getting into it with former Canucks president and general manager Mike Gillis. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Anytime, Thomas. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate it. I, I, let's start with just your reaction to Roberto Luongo, Henrik, and Daniel Sedin, three players you worked very closely with over the course of your Canucks tenure being enshrined in the Hockey Hall of Fame this weekend. Uh, well, I'm, you know, extremely proud to have had the opportunity to work with those guys. Um, I think that uh, the three of them were, you know, ultra competitive, great leaders, uh, great teammates. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty difficult to complain about those three when it comes to running a hockey team and, and what they brought every day and how they conducted themselves. How impressed were you seeing the way that they worked behind the scenes, right? One thing that sets all three apart, no matter who you talk to about those three players, was, you know, the way that you had to drag Roberto off the ice, <laughs> the way that Henrik and Daniel consistently, day after day, never had a bad one, and the effect that that had on their teammates. What, what was it like just watching them up close day after day as the guy in charge of this hockey team? Well, it, you know, it was an interesting, um, it, it was a really interesting first year because when I took the job in Vancouver, there were a lot of people, uh, both nationally and locally, who, you know, were of the opinion that you could never win with with the Sedins. Um, not so much Roberto, but there was a real polarization around uh, Daniel and Henrik that, uh, was profound and and people were voicing their opinions about these mm. two guys and whether or not they were capable of being uh, truly elite level players in the National Hockey League, whether they had the character to do it, whether they um, had the fortitude to do it, all of that stuff. And, um, and we were really careful. Like that first year, we were in an evaluation stage with everybody. And we made some decisions early around coaching staff and and other players that um, were showing people that we meant business in terms of being able to compete. And they were hard decisions. But the hardest one was to turn out the noise around Daniel and Henrik in mm -hmm. particular and evaluate them as the people that they were, what they were capable of currently, and then what we, we thought they could be capable of in the future. And 
we took our time, as everyone knows, it went down to uh, <clears throat> literally flying to Sweden the night before free agency. <laughs> but that's what right. we had. That's what we had to do because ultimately we're in the business of character assessment, and we knew they were great hockey players. I mean, they were eighty point guys at the time. They were uh, they were they were um, upper level players for sure. But if we wanted to truly build what we thought could be a championship team, we had to evaluate character before we evaluated anything else. And our opinion was that leadership and character outperform talent all the time. You can have all kinds of talented players, but if they don't have leadership and they don't have character. Um, they're not going to win at this level. And so our biggest assessment was um, understanding who they were as people and whether or not they were prepared to really take on a leadership role <clears throat> and what that would mean. And as we got more and more comfortable during the course of the year that, that they were um, the type of people that would embrace that, they were the right people to be leaders on the team. The money issue then Ultimately, in order to fit a team together, we had to be conscious of what, you know, the cap space was going to resemble because we did have to bring in a number of players to round out what we thought was a, a pretty strong core group of players. And ultimately, um, it had to go down to the last moment because we had to believe that they were going to make a sacrifice for us to get better. And they did. And that consequently... I think forged our relationship uh, from that point onward that we were all committed to winning. We had to do our part to win. Everyone had to make a sacrifice to make it happen. And it started with those two. And um, I can tell you that we were not disappointed ever in their integrity or their willingness to perform, willingness to be part of the community. There wasn't a day that we were disappointed in those two. You know, it's interesting because you talk about that first year, you come in, you're introduced as the new general manager of this team, and off the hop, your commentary was, you know, I actually think we have a fair bit of work to do to get to a point where we're contending, and obviously we know you end up doubling down very significantly and surrounding that core group. How quickly did you begin to get the sense, a sense that I think fans got a taste of just last week with Kevin Bieksa describing what that culture was like on video in that Canucks locker room. How quickly did you get a sense that, you know, maybe you weren't as far off as you as you might have thought based on what you saw from how that core group functioned together? Well, it, uh, yeah, that's an interesting question because we... Um we were of the opinion that if we maximized every player's opportunity, that we could accelerate it uh, a lot quicker. Once we saw how hard these guys were prepared to work, um, how they were coming together as a group and what they were, what they were really willing to do to be successful. And our job became, yeah, filling in a series of holes, but it also, our focus morphed into giving them the tools to be the absolute best they could be knowing full well that they were going to do everything they could to take advantage of those tools. And, you know, when you get to that point and, and we made mistakes in science and analytics and other things, but we also hit it right in certain ones. And we had a group that embraced it. 
and they were prepared to to listen, to experiment, to do the things that we thought were important to uh, to get to be a, a Stanley Cup contender. And it was it was absolutely a, a a great time to be part of the Canucks because we had a, a highly motivated group. We were doing things that we thought could help them. They were embracing it, and there was really a collective effort for everyone to get better. And what came with it was they trusted our judgment and we trusted theirs. And ultimately when there was an issue on that team, on that team, and there were issues, there's always issues. They were comfortable enough to come to us and describe them as they saw them, give us an opportunity to try and fix them and ultimately trust our judgment and how to move forward. And it, it was a real pleasure to, to work with those guys. When you go down to the wire in negotiations with players of that caliber, people of that caliber, how difficult is it? How stressful is it? And how important is it in a hard cap system to be comfortable wading into that level of uncertainty in making those types of contractual commitments, even to your best players? Well, it it wasn't as difficult as it might appear because we really only had two choices, either we got Daniel and Henrik signed when we were comfortable with, with their character, their work ethic, all of those things. So we knew that we were on the right track with them as players and as people. In the event they chose to go and get more money elsewhere, we were also comfortable in the idea that now we're in a full rebuilding mode and we had to do things differently. So, you know, ultimately we thought that the best course of action was to get them signed, provided they were aware of where we were trying to go and what we had to do to really be a competitive team. They understood that. So we were comfortable with it. And in the event, and I don't, I've represented players for a long time. I don't begrudge any player, you know, getting compensated at the, for the most amount of money that they can get. It's part of the business. Sure. They're short careers. You know, sometimes people don't want to play in a certain place. There's lots of reasons. But once we got comfortable with the idea that these guys could not only um, be leaders on the team, but also continue to drive and get better and lead by example, then it came down to allowing us the, the luxury of being able to go out and fill in the holes. And they did that through what they were prepared to accept as compensation to stay and be be those players on the team. So, you know, ultimately, if it hadn't worked that way, we'd go in a different direction. But we were very pleased at the end of the day that that's the result. When you look at Roberto Luongo's hockey DB page or his hockey reference page, and I mean, in the context of today, the usage, it's almost like looking at a Jack Morris <laughs> innings pitched page, right? Like it's 74, 75 games games for over four consecutive years in his prime uh 60 plus when, when you're building a team for you know around a couple of really good centermen a goalie what sort of a luxury is it to have a guy who you know is going to play a ton be extraordinarily durable and perform the way he consistently did stopping pucks what what does it free you up to do as a general manager well, you, you know, when you have a player like Roberto, who, um, again, I mean, you talk about character and leadership and all of the all of the ingredients that go into making great players and great teammates, he had it all. Um, 
when you go into every game knowing that your goalie has a chance to be the best player on the ice every game they play, um, it's an incredible luxury. And, you know, it allowed the team, the style of play, to become more upbeat, more transitional. Um, it allowed us to take chances with how the team played the style of play and most particularly transitioning from defense to offense as quickly as possible, it made that so much easier because you had a guy that was that reliable and that consistent and could soak up a ton of minutes without breaking down. And it gave us a chance to think differently about how to improve the team. And so, you know, when you can point to one player on your roster that allows you that luxury, it's pretty unique. I'd imagine when he goes into the hall, especially considering his self-effacing sense of humor, that at least a joke will be made about the fact that he was briefly captain, the first goalie to do so uh, since uh, the the Montreal Canadiens legend was Mike Mike something. Anyway, the guy who caught yeah. with both hands. But um, yeah. what what went into that decision? What what did it say about who Roberto was as a competitor? Well, Roberto had had uh, has so many great features. I mean, he outworked everybody. He did everything necessary to become as good a player as he could possibly be. The only shortcoming, and this isn't a shortcoming, it's just a progression, is that you know leaders, in, in my opinion, are not born. They're they're manufactured. They're put in positions where uh, it may be uncomfortable for them, but they grow and develop and and become leaders over a period of time, a period of experiences, mentors that are the right mentors. Like there's a number of factors that go into becoming a real leader and respected by your teammates. And, you know, we were of the opinion that the only thing that was lacking in Roberto's resume was an opportunity to be in that leadership role. And even though, you know, sometimes people thought we made, you know, frivolous or kind of decisions. Every decision we made was as well thought out as we could possibly make it. And, you know, when you have a player of his caliber and you see that they're deficient or potentially deficient in one area, that's no fault of their own. We were, our obligation was to give them the toolbox to overcome that deficiency. And that's what we were doing. We were trying to give him the respect that he deserved allow him to grow as a leader on the team and become a real voice in that room. And um, I think he did. I think he matured through that process. He was put under the gun. He had to answer questions. He had to go out after games and he did it. And he did it with, um, with courtesy. He did it, you know, sometimes it wasn't great to go out there and answer questions, but he did it. And, I really think that he matured into a, a real team leader through that process. Mike, when we think about that 10-11 team especially, one thing that almost stands out about it and feels pretty contemporary, even though it's been almost 15 years or uh, about that since, uh, since that season, is the makeup of the blue line the way that that group moved overall uh, in an era still where, you know, Dan Hamhuis wasn't thought of as a defensive defenseman uh, necessarily when he was acquired, maybe a hybrid guy. Now that's sort of the, the 
textbook version of what a defense first guy looks like in the NHL. How key was building a group that could move the puck in terms of getting the sorts of career years that that club got out of both Henrik, Daniel in consecutive years as Art Ross winners, Kessler scoring 40, uh, Yannick Hansen had 21 year. I mean, how, how crucial was it to have a defense that could support and transition in accomplishing what that team accomplished? It was critical. It was absolutely critical. When we got Christian Erhoff, that transformed that team. And, um, and then we, you know, we understood the importance of puck moving defensemen and perhaps the biggest beneficiary was Alex Burroughs because Alex was, you know, a, a very smart player. Um, he had come up through a lot of adversity. He had made a career for himself. Everyone's aware of it, but he was such a smart player that he could, he could, he understood the transition game as well as anybody. And he was constantly in a position where he was an outlet for quick transition, quick movement into the offensive zone. And I think he was a real beneficiary and, um, and he dragged along the twins as well. Like they were a great compliment because of Alex's understanding of, of how to get in position to receive a pass and go on offense as quickly as possible. So yeah, we were constantly searching for <clears throat> puck moving defensemen who were reliable defensively, but who had, um, had the skating ability to get out of trouble, not get hit and move the puck. And, you know, you can have the best forwards in the planet, but if they never get the puck in the right spot are never creating odd man rushes, it's really difficult for them to generate offense on their own. And we thought we had good offensive players. Um, they weren't great at the time, but then when they started getting the puck in more situations where they could accomplish more, they just got better and better. What was your reaction to the BXA locker room culture speech uh, that fans saw? Uh, I think it resonated in a major way with fans in this market. What was your reaction as someone who had uh, been close to that group uh, through their prime seasons? Uh, you know, I wasn't surprised. Um, Kevin, Kevin, uh, not only was he a, a great player for the Canucks, he was also he was one of those guys who truly cared about his teammates and, um, and played a major role in, in the culture that was in that room. And, you know, one of our objectives was we wanted to hand the workings of that dressing room over to the players, over to the leadership group that we had, because we were confident that they were going to make good decisions. They weren't selfish. They weren't, they checked their egos at the door and we knew they were going to make decisions that were in the best interest of the organization. Um, and in doing so, I think they really felt empowered, um, to be much, a much bigger part of, of a great opportunity than what usually happens. And Kevin, Kevin was a massive part of that. And I'm not surprised at all that he felt that way about those years because they were really special. Like those guys, they had control of that room and when they had a problem, they would come to us and describe it and we would work our way through it and we would come to a reasonable conclusion, um, you know, always trying to do the right thing. And, and they knew we were going to try and do the right thing, whatever that meant at that particular time. That's what we were going to try and do. And, you know, it's a tribute to them as a group that they, 
they felt um, comfortable enough in those roles for the good of the organization. And it, it made us really, like, it took a lot of pressure off of us as a management group because we knew those players cared and they were going to do what was necessary to make the team as good as it could be. And I think that came through with what he said. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Great chatting with you. Anytime, Thomas. Thanks for having me. That was former Canucks president and general manager Mike Gillis discussing what made the 2010-11 team so special. Henrik and Daniel Sedin's roles on that team. Roberto Luongo's leadership, his competitiveness, and the pride that he feels as those three players are inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, which will formally occur on Monday evening. It's going to be a special night for Canucks fans. The most Canucks-centric Hall of Fame night imaginable. And those three are absolute greats in franchise history. Really, there have been four players in the 52-year history of the Canucks who spent their best seasons in Vancouver while playing at a Hall of Fame level. Right? There's other guys like... He who shall not be named Mark Messier, <laughs> Matt Sundin, like other Hall of Fame caliber players of Warren Canucks colors. But these four guys, Bure, Luongo, Sadin Sadin, those are the four names. Hall of Fame caliber players who reached their absolute peaks, the apex of their powers, wearing Canucks colors, some of the most memorable seasons, some of the most memorable runs to Game 7 of the Cup Final, although not ultimately raising the trophy, unfortunately happened with those teams, those players, throwing fireballs, dominating the rest of the league. They were great times. They were great times. Monday night's going to be an opportunity to remember the best team in franchise history. And it's impossible not to draw a line and a contrast between what we're seeing today and what we enjoyed in this city 12 years ago. It's impossible. I do think that puts some pressure on this club as they play in Toronto today, as they play in Boston, the building that Canucks fans want to win in the most this weekend. And then Monday, you've got this Hall of Fame induction. There's a lot of questions surrounding this team right now. They were criticized pretty, pretty sharply by the, by the current executive, current reigning hockey operations executive, Jim Rutherford, on Monday on these very airwaves. And their response in Ottawa and Montreal was lukewarm. On Monday night, Canucks fans, the whole hockey world, are going to be reminded of the greatest seasons in Vancouver Canucks history. I think it's really important that this team find a way to put whatever is ailing it aside and just come out, give an honest effort on Saturday and Sunday. It's absolutely essential. Because on Monday, all everyone's going to be remembering is this impossible bar that the 10-11 team set and the 11-12 team. Right? That's what we're looking at here. That's what we're looking at over the next 72 hours. We really appreciate Mike dropping by, sharing some thoughts on the construction of that team, on what those players meant to him, on what he saw up close as those players leveled up, became the absolute best versions of themselves. We'll be back with Dan Murphy. You're listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.
Welcome back to the program. I'm Thomas Drance. This is Canucks Talk. No Jamie Dodd today, but I'm here. And I'm going to take you through a couple of interesting hockey conversations with some of my favorite people in the business over the last hour of our show. We'll be joined shortly by Dan Murphy. I wanted to quickly get to a question from the inbox before we do so. It's from Ryan in the Ridge. He says, Drancer, if you were to do a Mount Rushmore of Canucks GMs, is it just a duo or maybe a trio? Two for sure, Gillis and Quinn, Burke maybe. Burke's for sure. Like, Burke is for sure on the Mount Rushmore. You know, that crisis management stretch, 98 to 99, you know, from the Burray holdout through to the drafting of the Twins. That's as important a two-year stretch as anyone's ever had in Canucks franchise history. Curious if you can get to four. I can. Jake Milford. Jake Milford is the fourth man on the Canucks GM Mount Rushmore. Ryan in the Ridge. Good question. Fun to think about. Maybe we'll get into it a little bit after we talk to Dan. Murph. Let's welcome Murph to the program. Hello, Murph, hello, my friend. Thomas. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me, my friend. I appreciate yeah, it yeah. enormously. How's your day going in Toronto? It's not too bad. It's a beautiful day here. Uh, walked around a little bit. Uh, met up with uh, our clothing lady, uh, Deborah Berman, <laughs> uh, to uh, order a couple suits for the spring. Um, and then I'm going to, uh, I think Shorty's got to go to some, his buddy is an actor in a play. Might grab yep. early dinner with Shorty, and then I'm going to go over to the uh, McCormick and Hedger household for a couple of beers later. So I haven't Lovely. seen Sean McCormick in a while, and, and Jen for that matter. So yeah, I've got a good little day planned. Yeah, great fun. Great fun. And I'll tell our listeners that Shorty is going to see the Harry Potter um, dra- dramatic show, The Cursed Child. So I'm sure he'll enjoy it. He forgot to buy me a ticket, though, so I'll get over it in time. <laughs> <laughs> um, Murph, Murph, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing from the Canucks? Did, for, from your perspective, did we see enough of a response considering the pointed commentary of the president of hockey operations on Monday, the last two days in Ottawa and Montreal? No, no. And quite frankly, I, 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 mean, I didn't think that it could get worse in the first two periods in Ottawa, but I think the first two periods in Montreal were worse just considering the circumstances of what happened the night before, that they fully got away with one against the Senators. They won a game they probably shouldn't have. They had a good third period, so they knew what they could build off, and then they came out and laid an egg again. And let's be honest here. I mean, there's in a game like last night, there's plenty of blame to go around. I mean, um, from veterans making dumb mistakes like Pearson's penalty in the opening minute. Um, you know, I'm not going to lay a lot on Thatcher Demko, but that first goal was one he would save 99 times out of 100 last season. Yep. Um, you know, uh, from JT Miller, uh, the giveaway to the, for the three, nothing goal. I mean, there was, there was just plenty of blame to go around. Um, so I, I thought that probably Montreal was the first two periods were worse than Ottawa. Now they had another decent third and maybe if one of those posts goes in, we're talking something different and they got away with another one, but they didn't. And it's not like the quality of competition uh, was great. I mean, the Habs, I know they're above 500 now, and they've probably punched above their weight class a little bit. Uh, mm. But these are teams, I think, going into the season that everybody felt the Canucks should be better than. And yet they're getting, you know, kind of filled in through uh, two of the three periods in those games. Are you as confused as I am from the by the, just the way that this team, even within the context of a single game, can look like two different sides entirely? Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I was thinking about this because you know, I was right beside you last night when we were asking these questions to Bruce. And I'm, I'm trying to come up with an answer, and I, I think just the answer is the team's just not playing good enough to um, you kind of uh, inflict their will on another team right now. They mm-hmm. can't stack shift after shift. They can't, you know, come at them in waves. Um, you know, we've seen them, you know, the most they've played in the game this year is probably two periods, close to three against Pittsburgh. Um, you know, I think they played pretty well against Nashville, but, you know, the first three minutes of that third period was yep. not great. I think one of the best periods they played all season was the first one against Edmonton, uh, but they might have just caught the Oilers by surprise. So I, I don't know if they haven't – I don't know what, like, the the identity of the team. It's just not good enough to really stack shift after shift and impose their will on teams. At least that's what I've seen so far. Um, you know, I'm not willing to say – I mean, I don't think they're playing their best. Clearly they're not. Yeah. Uh, but my answer would be probably they're just not good enough to do that for 60 minutes – regardless of the competition right now. Uh, to, to lighten the conversation a bit, I'm curious to, to ask you, because you watch this team closer than anyone, and you have a, ch- you have a chance to you know, uh, chat with the guys in, in a more casual setting often. Yeah. What's, your fi- what's your favorite performance to this point? Not, not the best, just like the performance you're seeing from a Canucks player over the course of this season where you're like, you know what, that guy does a lot of enjoyable stuff that, that uh, I enjoy watching as a hockey fan. Well, I mean, I think the obvious answer is probably Pedersen. Mm, but I'm, yeah. you know, but I'm probably going to go with Kuzmenko. Um, for the mere fact that you know we weren't really sure what he was going to be. I mean, I, I think people uh, when they envisioned the sign, they said hopefully he could be what he is right now. Um, you know, I think his underlying numbers are still pretty solid. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. line is. You know, for clear and away their best line right now, without question. And I think McKay is just getting better as well as the legs get under him. But uh, you know, the easy answer is Pedersen. But I'm going to say Kuzmenko just because I think it's more of a surprise. Um, we saw Pedersen's training camp. We saw his preseason. We all thought he was going to be good. He has been. So uh, I'm going to say if I'm going to go rank them in three, I'll go Kuzmenko, Pedersen, Spencer Martin. Yeah, yeah, and Spencer Martin's been a, a pretty incredible story considering the time that he spent out of the league. Uh, in the event that they go Martin first and then Demko on the upcoming yeah. back-to-backs and uh, an Oakville kid having worked this long to get a lengthy look in the NHL uh, gets a chance to start on Hockey Night in Canada. I mean, what, what a great story. How good would that be for, for a guy like Martin? How happy would you be for him? Well, I mean, I think you'd have to be extremely happy for him. Um, You know, we saw last year what it meant for him to get back into the league, uh, to get his first win in five seasons, um, you know, to, you know, earn a one-way contract, to earn Mm -hmm. a backup job. And, you know, and it hasn't, like, we all know the the numbers now. He hasn't lost a game in regulation playing with Vancouver. I mean, that's more than what you can ask for from your backup goaltender. Uh, so to get a start on hockey night uh, in his hometown, basically, against the Leafs team uh, that is starting to play much better. And I know they play tomorrow night against Pittsburgh, so they'll be on the second end of a back-to-back. Uh, but, man, what a great story that would be, uh, not only for Spencer, but for the broadcast uh, and the, <laughs> the, the people doing the game. I, I'm not sure that's the call I would make. I, I don't I, I understand, again, like, I, I'm not going to throw a bunch on Demko here. The environment he played in last year was... Uh, you know, not great, and yet he uh, found a way to make, you know, uh, lemonade or lemons 
Um, <laughs> this year he hasn't been able to yet, right? Like he hasn't found that level, and I think clearly it's affecting him. Um, I think he's in his own way a little bit. He's in his own head a little bit, uh, and that's not something I don't think anyone expected. I mean, if you were to ask me what are the, the for surefire things going to this season, I probably would have said the three main guys. I think Demko is going to be good no matter what. I think Quinn Hughes is as long as he's healthy, and I think at this point we can question whether he's really gotten back uh, to full health because he hasn't really been as explosive as what we're used to, and Pedersen. And so I, I'm a little shocked it's gone this way for Demko. I do think that the pedigree is there. I do think he will rebound. And so do you put your belief in him against the Leafs on a Saturday night? Because I think, you know, that the last time there was fans in, that he was here, he had a tough first period, maybe let in two goals in the first three shots. I can't really remember. I think they ended up losing 3-1 in that game. I can't really remember. Mm. But, um, so I don't know. I mean, do you, you know, we saw Bruce last night say, sometimes you have to force a guy to fight his way out of it. Well, Playing him, a guy that's kind of struggling a bit on a Saturday in Toronto, uh, would be forcing a guy to fight his way out of it for sure. So maybe that's the call that Bruce will make. Yeah. Either way, two tough opponents coming up this weekend, and the schedule doesn't get easier. How crucial is this stretch? What do we need to see from the Canucks? I mean, I think you need to see, first off, um, I, I want to see Miller back on the wing. I, I just, I know that Bruce likes to think he has. Uh, more balance, and perhaps on paper he does. I just think that Miller, when you had him on the wing, you saw a much better player. Um, you know, I, I need to see, like, I need to see a first period where they come out and they dictate. You know, like, this is, you know, we're into, you know, early November, and this is kind of the season for them. Um, if they don't get traction going here, um, you know, I think we're gonna, we can rule out the playoffs. You know, you can rule them out in a couple of weeks if things don't go well. And also mm-hmm. you have got a you know, president and the GM that are in an alley mood that have, you know, the president's made some pointed comments about accountability from the players, about the structure of the coach and the team. And I don't think that he'll hesitate to make some moves, uh, whether they be popular or unpopular. So I think this next stretch uh, is, you know, hugely critical for this team. Um, you know, even if it's just to see them, like, I, I know you need the result now, but if they came out and played a great game and lost in overtime or lost by a goal in Toronto, but they were really good, I think you could say, okay, let's build off that. But it's getting to the point now where it's more about the results and the process, and you know, neither have been good the last two games. We walk into the room yesterday, and Bo Horvat's waiting for us, and I sidle up to him first because I was the first guy in, and I was just like, you again, huh? And he's like, me every night. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, shades, perhaps, of, of a couple gentlemen who are going into the uh, Hall of Fame over the course of the weekend. How impressed yeah. are you by what you've seen from Bo, though? Not, not even not even the goals, you know, not even yeah. on the ice, just in terms of how he's navigated all of this noise and uncertainty, um, you know, with his public commentary, with the way he's carrying himself this season. It's been great. And, you know, I think that we discussed this early on, like in the you know training camp, he was asked about it. He said, no matter what, like, I'm not going to let this become a distraction. And I believed him. Um, I felt he was the type of player that could carry on about his business. Well, I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, I think he does want to be in Vancouver. I think he'd love to sign a long-term contract here. I think he'd like to, to be the captain here and, and finish career here. But he knew that going into the season, even with all the contract, he's getting paid one way or another. Someone's paying him, right? And so he's like, you know, I think maybe I should have been taken care of. But I wasn't, and I'm just going to let my play dictate. 
and he's done that. I'm sure he'd give up, you know, all of his goals for this team to have, you know, 10 wins right now, but they don't. And then, you know, it. I, I've been doing this job for 20 years now, right? And it is, you know, it is the captain's job to speak, I think, most times after games. And we saw the Twins, they'd always be there after losses, and a lot of times they wouldn't be there after wins, right? Mm. They let other guys talk, and, you know, unless, of course, they had huge, huge nights, which happened quite a bit. So I see that a little bit out of bow, and, and I'm glad because I think you should be like that. And, you know, you know, over the years, um, you know, Roberto talked every game. You know, I, there was a time where they didn't let them talk pregame, of course, because then you know, who's starting tonight? Is it Schneider? Is it Longo? Why aren't you starting? I get that. The pregame stuff. But I think when uh, performances, when the team is not performing well, your top-paid guys and your best guys should be there to answer the questions. Um, you know, and not deflect it to some of the the guys that aren't as high profile. Your 20 years covering this team coincided with an awful lot of Roberto Luongo starts, an awful lot of Henrik and Daniel Sedin games, an awful awful lot of wins with those three sort of leading the way. Uh, What will Monday mean to you watching it from afar, uh, presumably in a Buffalo hotel room? At the Western and Buffalo. <laughs> yeah, sorry, uh, bud. You know, you know, I think it'll, I think it'll mean a great deal. I mean, I, I think, you know, you know Roberto very well from working with him, uh, and I think we can say that, you know, obviously the the play speaks uh, for itself for all three of those guys. You know, just you know, elite elite players uh, in the National Hockey League and did it for a long time. But when you speak to them, uh, you know, and we know them as people and everything, all the whole cliche, they're better people than their players. is true. I don't know Roberto as well as the twins. Uh, but I think when you see this accomplishment uh, and, the, you know, I know the twins will be stoic about it, but I, I have to assume there's a tremendous amount of pride that they're both going into the hall of fame, considering what they went through at the start of their career, considering what it became. Uh, and I, you know, and I think uh, Canucks fans can feel that pride with them because Again, you know, these were two guys that uh, I think by the end were, were greatly respected around the league for their toughness and for their play, but early on they weren't, right? And they were, you know, guys that got made fun of. I remember, like, early in their careers, there'd be signs, you know, whatever, the sisters back when, you know, people felt that was still okay to say. I remember one time say, you know, Mary-Kate and what's the other, what are the two twins? Ashley. Ashley, you know, and I told the yeah. twins that, and, you know, Daniel's like, well, I hope I'm Ashley. You know, so like there's a few guys that were, were made fun of, and by the end, I think I think people came around to really respecting uh, not only the way they played the game, but just you know the, the unique style that they had. Were they from from a hosting perspective? Now, I, you know, I wasn't around the team until 2014, so I, yeah. I missed their absolute heyday. But for you, in the traveling party, being around them day to day, I mean, were they as consistent in terms of their mood in terms of just being the easiest guys to work with ever um all along from your perspective most definitely right i mean and they they came in the year before i started and early on you know you didn't have to go to them as much because you had nasland right you had bertuzzi you had jovanovsky you had olden you had a bunch of real seasoned players to talk to right so the twins were kind of second level but once they kind of took over, um, they were the same guys every day. And they were never in bad moods. They always had time for you. They would always return a text right away if you had a question, uh, even a phone call. 
they were, you know, super, super easy to deal with. Now, they always I didn't give you the, the greatest answers or the, um, you know, the, the, the great sound bites. I think they were thoughtful and introspective. Mm. They hated talking about themselves, clearly, right? They were always better talking about others. But um, they were always accountable, and I think they were always honest. Uh, even if it wasn't the flashiest answers, I don't think they were ever trying to pull one over on you. Well, and they don't love the spotlight, which is going to make no. this weekend, I'd imagine, pretty interesting for them. I agree with you. They're going to be super proud. I'm sure they might even be emotional, you know, even if they don't show it. <laughs> yeah. um, but 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 how, how, how uncomfortable do you think this experience is likely to be for them, even though I, I'm sure it'll mean the world to them, maybe more so in retrospect? You know, I, I think they're... You know, they can handle it much better. They've had their jerseys retired in Vancouver, so they went yeah. through that. Uh, let's not forget the final, you know, when they announced they were going to retire, they had that whole week that I'm sure was very painful that was dedicated to them, right? But by <laughs> right. the end, I think it was greatly enjoyable because their families were around and they had that great last home game. So I think they're probably a lot more, you know, able to handle it because of those situations. Mm. Um, I know they're, they're going to be prepared, no question. They'll have their speeches. But you're right. I mean, they they might be emotional inside, but I don't think we'll see any emotion on the outside from these guys, <laughs> except for the odd smile. And you know, and, yeah. and their personalities, and this goes for a lot of players, not the twins, not just the twins, but their personalities off camera are so much greater than the ones you see on camera. Right? They're a little mm-hmm. more guarded, uh, in, uh, even with teams like the team now, like Brock Besser. His personality off cam- personality off camera is great. Get him on camera, and it's like blah blah. Right? He just doesn't right. open up in that way. And that, the twins were kind of. The same in that in that in that way, I think. Uh, and there's a lot of players that are that way as well. They just they're not super comfortable opening up on on camera, saying something like perhaps guys like you know Alex Burrows, never minded. You know Kevin Bieksa, never minded. Uh, Shane O'Brien, never mind. Some guys love the camera and love to open up. Others don't. <laughs> the twins fall into that category. Yeah, Kevin Bieksa has no off switch. That's the best no. part about it. No. <laughs> um, last, last one for you. Last one for you. I'll, I'll throw you one fastball before I let you go. But, but I'm doing it with my love and my thanks uh, for joining me today. Um, number one, should it hang from the rafters at Rogers Arena? <sighs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I made uh, the joke back when, when when people were asking about this a while ago. I made the joke that as long as he's counting towards the cap, it shouldn't be. Uh, but now he's off the books. I don't know. Can I think? I, I want to think about it more. But I say with with Kurt McLean, who you know, I know, I know that Roberto uh, his numbers overall are better, but they both kind of accomplished the same thing in Vancouver, right? A cup final appearance. Um, I don't know. I, I think I think they could justify you doing it, and as well as as not doing it. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna hedge no, but I could I could certainly be convinced, convinced? otherwise. Yeah, I, I probably could, once once the arguments come out and the numbers come out, I could be convinced otherwise. But I'll, I'll uh, have why, to why work on you. Yeah. Oh, for sure, <laughs> for sure. You know, I, I, and here's the thing: I'd love to see a speech for it. That's for sure. Uh, if right. his number was retired in Vancouver, but let's 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 let the listeners go. We're close to Remembrance Day here, right? Tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and first off, uh, I have great respect for. I'm going to tell a funny story, but I have great respect for all all the veterans. In fact, my best man at my wedding is currently overseas. Uh, you know, I got engaged on Juno Beach, so there's there's layers. But uh, I just want to. I think that you knew this story. We were in Ottawa one time. Uh, it must have been like 09, 20, no, maybe 2010. 
And it was a Thursday in Ottawa, and they did the morning skate, and there was a game on the 11th against the Senators, but we're, we're busing back to downtown. They were staying downtown at the time, not out in Canada. And uh, uh, I believe it was Elaine Vigneault stood up and said, okay, guys, no morning skate tomorrow. We'll be uh, attending the Remembrance Day celebrations. And if you have never done it in Ottawa, it's kind of like July, it's kind of like July 1st. You want to do it at some point. We'll be at the, uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and we'll be taking in all the Remembrance Day uh, celebrations, uh, and it should be a great day. And a voice from the back of the bus yelled out, even Erhoff. <laughs> and I, I <laughs> and I believe I believe it was Keith Ballard. I can't be totally sure, but it was man. You've never heard the bus erupt uh, erupt to uh, you did that day. It was one of the funniest things I've, I've heard. And yes, even oh Erhoff, he, he did attend as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Christian's such a good-natured guy. He wouldn't have minded, but man, that's good. Yeah. yeah <laughs> well, thanks for that, Dan. Uh, we'll uh, we'll look forward to watching you on on Saturday in Boston, um, or Sunday in Boston. Excuse me, yep. and enjoy your yep. evening. Uh, enjoy your evening. Send my best to Shorty. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks, Thomas. Talk to you soon. That's Dan Murphy with a howitzer story, unbelievably funny. <laughs> a Remembrance Day gift from Murph himself. So. We're going to come back for our last segment and do the PDO report with Dmitry Filipovich, where we'll look ahead at a make-or-break week. And make no mistake, it is that. It is that. It's a make-or-break week for a team that's been... It's so hard to put your finger on what's going wrong with this team, in part because I think their form doesn't match their reality. Like, I don't think they're this high-scoring team. I don't think they're this porous defensive team. I think they're far closer to average in both respects. And before this week, their game was actually trending in the right direction, and then they go 500, and their game, at 5-on-5 in particular, has fallen off massively until they're trailing. It's so hard to see this team clearly. They defy rational analysis and I think that's why the market's reaction at least in part is so emotional to what we're seeing we'll get into a lot of that with Dmitry Filipovich we'll go to break early we'll come back we'll do a longer last segment with Dmitry the full PDO report that's coming up next on Canucks Talk you are listening to Sportsnet 650 Welcome back. It is our final segment of Canucks Talk today, Thursday, November 10th. I'm Thomas Drance doing the show today in the absence of Jamie Dodd. He'll be back with us soon, very soon. But without him here, I do have Dmitry Filipovich of the PDO cast, my good friend and yours. He's here to do the PDO report with me. We're going to talk Canucks, but first, before we talk about Vancouver's opponents, Dimitri, what are you seeing from Vancouver? Why are they struggling like this? <laughs> um, that's a great question, Thomas. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I much, mean, be- much better than my usual work. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I mean, 
where do we even begin? The the performances the past couple nights. I know they got the win against the Senators, but it really felt felt like that was a miracle of sorts. And then last night against against the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, there's so much to nitpick here. And 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 I was on with um, our pals Halford and Bruff yesterday, and they were asking me how much of this is a personnel versus system and structure issue. And I just don't, regardless of your mileage on on the job Bruce Boudreaux has done this season, I just don't know how you look past the players that they actually have, especially on the blue line, and a lot blame anywhere beyond that. Sometimes it's simple, right? Yeah. I mean, it really is. Like, <laughs> like, it, especially especially in terms of blue line talent, right? Like, that's such a hard thing to to fake unless, like, one team that's really been able to do so in the past is the Pittsburgh Penguins and Mike Sullivan, and he's kind of catered his system to mm. really limiting their responsibilities, especially in terms of making plays with a puck in the breakout. They have such good puck support, and they really just get them to do very simple stuff on in transition. But that's really kind of an, an exception. For the most part, talent is so important in terms of blue line depth, and if you don't have it, it's it's going to cost you one way or another. Uh, it's it's tough. I, I, what about the Florida Panthers? The Florida Panthers don't have a ton on the blue line right now. They're making it work, kind of, right? Yes, but at least the players they have, they're they're flawed. But guys like Brandon Montour and Gustav Forsling, like at least they can they can move really well, right? So it kind of yeah. it, it feeds into the way they want to play stylistically, where they're always kind of playing downhill, north south, and they really just detach them and allow allow them to kind of roam and just go for it. And they're going to make mistakes defensively, but it's going to make them look better because at least they can fit in and, and kind of play that way. And it's a fun brand of hockey. What the Canucks are trying yeah. to do with the guys they have is just kind of the exact opposite of that. It's also one thing to have defenders out of position when you've got Barkov, Bennett, Lusterainen. Right. Right? Then when you have Vancouver's personnel down the middle, right? Wow. Lusterainen getting, getting included in that group. What a... Does, should, shouldn't he be? Should we know that, like... Are you reporting that you're his agent now or something? Well, that what a what a combination to, to include in that list. No, he's fine. Is he not good? No, he's fine. He's fine. He's good. I like him a lot. I wasn't expecting Barkov and then Lucerina. That was that was just uh, <laughs> it was out of left field. <laughs> well, I wasn't gonna go with Lundell. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, look, we could talk about the Panthers all day. Everyone knows I could talk about the Panthers all day. But the Canucks are playing a back-to-back set, and first up is a Toronto Maple Leafs team that I'm kind of fading as an elite side based on what I've seen to this point in the season. What's your mileage on this iteration of the Toronto Maple Leafs? Right. So they're 7-4-3 and three this season. They've only got a plus-two goal differential, which is kind of alarming Wild. to see. I mean, listen, they've kind of shown us the, the double-edged sword that is the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? They've lost. The first they lost the Coyotes at the start of the year, but they lost recently on the road to the Sharks and the Ducks, two teams they have no business losing to. <laughs> and then they go yeah. off and they rattle off a back-to-back wins over the Bruins and the Hurricanes. And that's kind yeah. of, it's been sort of the rub on them for a long time now, right? Like, generally, especially in the regular season, I guess I should say, they play up to their competition. When they play good teams, they look good. And then sometimes they have these momentary lapses where when they play a bad team, they just inexplicably lose to them. And so maybe, I guess... If you're, if you're, depending on how you feel about this Canucks team, maybe that's a, that's an opportunity there for them to sneak in and catch them off guard. Yeah, what what is it? I mean, what is it about this Maple Leafs team? Is it a mental block? Like, what what are we talking about here with them? I'm not sure. I, I generally like refrain from from psychoanalysis in terms of uh, <laughs> trying to figure it out. I, I don't know any of these guys personally, but I mean, if you look at what they've been going through this season, a big change for them is a, the bottom six group, which was 
a strength for them last year, especially when yep. they played the right players. You know, not when they played Wayne Simmons and Kyle Clifford, but when they actually played their best bottom six players. That was a really big strength for them. Like they were able to take advantage of other teams bottom sixes and head-to-head matchups and they were able to really kind of put their top players in a position to succeed by getting them out on the ice in advantageous situations where the other team was tired and reeling and so that was a big point of of, of kind of strength for them and this year I mean they lost Mikheyev Jason Spezza retired they lost Blackwell I think that was a low-key big loss for them Pierre Engvall yeah, not, not playing to the caliber that he was last year where he looked much better and so now all of a sudden pretty much everything they've tried from bringing in Cali Yarncroft, you know, they quickly um they quickly punted on Nicolas Obekubel and, and and lost him on waivers to, to the Capitals. But yeah, the bottom of six is totally different in terms of configuration and they're not getting nearly the same results as they did last year. Have they stumbled onto something though with this Mulgan Aston Reese camp group? Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's like a that's like a very traditional third checking line, right? Like you just get right. them out there, they're gonna have like a a 20% ozone start rate and just have them do all the dirty work. And yeah, I mean, Zach Aston Reese, I'm, I'm shocked that he was available to just come on a, on a player tryout basically in camp for them. Like that's a guy that should be a priority ad for teams. And so, yeah, I, I think they have stumbled on something with that group in particular. Uh, what impact has Lilligren made since returning to the lineup? How, how much did they miss him with some of those early season struggles, particularly through California? Yeah. I, I like him a lot. Um, they've had a lot of injuries in the blue line, right? And that's yeah. similar we're gonna, when we talk about the Sabres later. That they've kind of gone through that as well. But, yeah, I, I love Lilligren's game. Um, big addition. He scored the two goals, I believe, in their most recent contest against the, the Golden Knights. And he's one of those players where, like, they need him because guys like him and Sandine are able to to play the style the Leafs ideally want to play in terms of getting the puck quickly up the ice, but doing so in a very sort of reliable and responsible way, getting it to their forwards. And they don't also don't necessarily, I know I just said he scored the two goals, but typically they're pretty selective in terms of where they shoot from. Uh, They take the fewest point shots out of any team in the league. And so guys like that Mm -hmm. are really able to feed into that system. And so, yeah, a guy like Lilligren is is a huge add for them coming back. When we talk about the Canucks, we so often talk about teams that move quickly, transition the puck being the tough matchups for them. Then they then they stumbled against Ottawa and Montreal on form. <laughs> so, uh, you know, maybe, maybe maybe our logic has changed and they're just struggling, period. But are the Maple Leafs fast enough to profile like one of those teams that could give the Canucks trouble based on the sheer speed of their north-south game? In... When they're at their best, yes. Like, they, they can take advantage of your mistakes very quickly, and so they, they don't necessarily have fast skaters, but they can play really fast. But what we've seen from them so far this year is, for the most part, it's so much more of a methodical approach for them. They're really not attacking off the rush at all unless it's kind of a solo William Nylander venture. And so, yeah, I, I think you're, you're kind of hit, hinting on the, on the right piece of analysis there where this Leafs team, it's weird to hear the way they're generally talked about by people who seemingly haven't watched them play in, in four years. Like they're still talked about as this high octane right. offensive team that takes too many risks and, you know, they're really exciting and young, but they're going to make defensive mistakes. And it's like, no, they've, they're generally one of the better, stingier defensive teams in the league. They're actually much more methodical and calculated with the way they play. And sometimes their goalies are going to give up bad goals and we're going to kind of think that that's a defensive mistake, but that happens to everyone. And, and so I, I really implore people to actually watch this Leafs team and, and recalibrate your sort of expectations for them because it's, 
night and day from what they used to be. And really, all analysis of them seems to be like totally missing that. Tonight, the Boston Bruins, Vancouver's opponent on Sunday, are hosting the Calgary Flames. This is going to be a good one. Yep. They're gonna, that's going to be a good game. And the Calgary Flames are plus 165 road dogs, mm. which is wild. I mean, that is like they're significant underdogs tonight. The Detroit Red Wings are, are um, like they're, they're the, the Calgary Flames have the same odds of beating the Bruins tonight as the Ottawa Senators have of beating the Devils. The right. Devils, like, come on. Are, are the Bruins that good? Well, do, I, you know why the books are doing that. Do you want me to give you a, a stat for the, the Bruins at home this season? Yeah, let's go. They're 7-0. and They've outscored their opponents in those seven games 27-13. to Oh, my goodness. Yeah, now, listen, we know better Wagon. than to overreate a, a, a seven-game home split, right? Like, they've been good everywhere they've played for the most part this season. Um, but I think they're kind of factoring that into it as well. And, and they're getting Charlie McAvoy back tonight. And I think that is the fact that they're 11-2 and and they didn't have Charlie McAvoy yet and they were missing Brad Marchand as well for the first handful of those games. I mean, it's remarkable that they were able to, to rattle off this type of a start. Oh, yeah. The 11-2 and two team getting a Norris-caliber right-handed defenseman back. That, that should help. Now, um, we should say, they, you know, they, <laughs> 11-2, they have two official losses, in, according to NHL.com. They took a massive L off the ice. So yep. yeah. Yes, they did. We should, we should note that. Like, it's not all, uh, no, it's... Not, not all celebratory for them. No, I mean, they're still, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, with the Bruins, I'm going to say that for me, going into this season, the Bruins are the biggest early season surprise for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, aside from what's happened to Anaheim. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, seriously, I had a Bruins fade on because, you know, I didn't know what they were going to get from their goalies. And I didn't think that they had the defenders outside of Greslick and McAvoy, who I expected them to struggle in his absence, I didn't think they had the defenders to make it work in McAvoy's absence. Uh, You know, I'm a little lower on Carlo than industry average. Instead, that's emerged as one of the strengths of their team, and there's one player really driving that. Can you tell my listeners about him? Ambers at home? Oh, well, I was going to say Connor Connor Clifton. (laughs) (laughs) Go listen to Friday's PDO cast. You and I did like 20 minutes on Connor Clifton. Yeah, Yeah, we we are distantly related to him, apparently. Here's uh, here's the thing. They have three defensemen. So they've played 13 games as a team. They have three defensemen that have played at 10 games for them. Lindholm, Clifton, and Riley, who they just waived to make room for, for McAvoy. But it's remarkable that... They really, it's been kind of a rotating cast, and especially with how much volume McAvoy ate up for them last year, where in all situations he was a total workhorse for them, to be able to just kind of replace that seamlessly. I know Lindholm really stepped up and and, and kind of covered for a lot of that, but it's truly remarkable that they were able to kind of get away with that for these first 13 games. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. What, What is it? Is it the same thing it's always been? Is it they just destroy you at the top of the lineup and get just enough from everyone else and then have a real have really good special teams like is it that simple yet again for the boston bruins yeah well a big question mark for me heading in was they they also had a coaching change right and i think you and i are both Mm -hmm. pretty high on on bruce cassidy and sort of the defensive system that he had had year over year where they were one of the stingiest teams in the league and jim montgomery came in and, and the defensive numbers have pretty much stayed exactly where they've always been they're giving up the third fewest goals against fourth fewest expected goals against seventh fewest shots against they're so stingy Mm. Patrice Bergeron 
37 years old, year 19 in the NHL. He's got a 63% expected goal share when he's on the ice at 5 on 5. I mean, <laughs> oh it's goodness. just comical. So yeah, I mean, it, it is sort of this, the same formula and that ability of them to kind of maintain that structure, dominate on special teams, it's it's really just it's remarkable. And yeah, I, I Bergeron, I mean, we could we could go all day talking about it, but what he's doing at this at this age, it's it's stunning that he's still the best 5 on 5 player in the league. I'm not convinced that it's not going to be the year 2030 and we're going to be yeah. like, 43-year-old Patrice Bergeron should win the Selkie again for the 10th year in a row. Like, I, I, at this point, I mean, how much longer can this guy defy all logic, biology, everything we know about this game? Yeah, well, we're in, like, 2015. Team, <laughs> team like, fans of their rivals were like, all right, well, if we kind of factor in the next year... Patrice Bergeron's finally going to decline. I think the Bruins are going to be vulnerable <laughs> here. And it's like, no, it's five, six, seven years later, he's as good as he's ever been. It's, it's truly stunning. <laughs> yeah, no one's made a lick, uh, a lick of money betting against Patrice Bergeron sustaining this level of play. All right, on to the Sabres. One of the most exciting teams in hockey, although slipped up really significantly the other night, uh, losing 5-1 to, who did they lose to really badly? They again? lost 4-1 to Arizona. Oh, brutal. Yeah. So, so is there is there signs of slippage from the Sabers? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. So, Matias Samuelson's out. Henry Yokiharu's out. Those guys have been out for a while. Samuelson got hurt in Vancouver um, when they played against the Canucks earlier this season. Ilya Lubushkin just came back. He clearly doesn't look right himself, and so that's three key defenders for them that are out of the lineup. And I just don't think they have the, that. We just talked about the Bruins, that kind of defensive infrastructure. They they don't have that, and so. When you lose that type of personnel, all of a sudden it exposes a lot of weak links, and so they're just they're bleeding a lot um, against. Now they're scoring a lot of goals themselves. I believe only the Bruins actually have scored more goals than them so far this season. So it makes for a pretty fun game environment where they're going to give up a lot, but they can also score a lot themselves. And so I think it's going to be a pretty fun game actually because they're sort of playing this style that's very open ended, and they actually want to run and gun with you now under Don Granato, which is a big change from the way they played in the past. I've been unfurling a take of late that the Canucks are going to be far closer to average offensively and far less permissive defensively as their percentages regress in both areas. For a team that profiles like Vancouver, uh, is is Buffalo a pretty difficult opponent then, considering that a uh, run-and-gun system, you know, if their goalies aren't right, there's some danger there. But also, uh, can the Canucks sco- score with the Sabres? I mean, he probably not at five on five. Uh, they can yeah. if they can if they can get on the power play and kind of start cooking right. there. Um, and so that's always a possibility. I mean, I think in reality they probably can keep up with them offensively and and and, and win in a five four game environment. I I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. I, I don't know what what the alternative is. Like, or would they be trying to just kind of lock it down and slow it down and try to win in a in a plotting methodical two uh-huh. one game? I don't think this team's suited to do that either. Oh, man. Well, what are they suited to do? How should the Canucks be trying to play with the personnel they have? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you or I are paid nearly enough to be answering that question. Uh, And I don't think Cam Sharon's paid nearly enough to answer that question. No, none of us are. I don't think Boudreaux's paid enough to answer that question. Oh, my goodness. I I mean, there's no right answer. That's that's well, that's. I, I mean, I would argue there is. It's just not a hockey one. It's a it's a management one. Yes. Uh, with with regards to the Canucks, uh, you know, I'm watching that game in Montreal, and 
this team has obviously been terrified of what a rebuild could look like. And I'm watching this packed Bell Center house just loving every minute of the way that this Habs team is playing. And and it felt like, you know, obviously it helps when you get off to a 3 nothing lead. But honestly, it felt like the fans would have been into it if it was like a 2-1 game that they lost. Yep. Um, like, is that... Is that what they're scared of? Like, what, what, why are teams so hesitant to do something like the Canadians have when, honestly, it's an awful lot more fun than scraping to be 17th or 16th best in the league and, you know, probably not getting there? Yeah, I think it's really insulting to the fan base to suggest that, oh, they don't have the, the appetite for this, right? I think a lot of smart fans out there that are surely listening to this program would agree that, as long as there's a plan in place, it's coherent, you can sort of see it mapped out, and then the team's following it consistently with each of their moves, you can latch onto that and you can kind of recalibrate your expectations, and that's exactly what the Habs did. I mean, at the start of last season, you know, they came in with actually heightened expectations and they completely flopped on their face. They wound up firing their coach. They wound up making management changes, and they completely, with this clean slate, decided, all right, we're going to tear everything down. We're going to totally shift our sights to the future. We're going to hire Martin St. Louis, who's all of a sudden going to come in and cater our entire offense around Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield, our two most exciting young players. And we're going to make mistakes. There's going to be nights where we lose 6-2, to two, but ultimately it's going to be a net positive for now because we're still going to get good lottery odds, but we're going to play an exciting brand of hockey, and we're going to kind of get the best of both worlds that way instead of trying to double down on an older group that is going to be in the lottery, but not play any sort of exciting games along the way. And so you're right. I think kind of comparing the trajectory of those two organizations is really revealing. How do you look at Vancouver's profile right now? I mean, uh, let me let me just like, I see a 47% expected goals for team through 14 games, a team that's going to get better goaltending, but who's going to start shoot, like who's not going to keep shooting 10% over the course of the year. And you put that together and it's like, I... I, yeah, I think this team is going to start losing a lot of 3-2 games if they can't control play an awful lot better than they have right now. Um, you know, to the point where, I mean, I, I sort of came into the season expecting a high 80s point total or a low 90s point total, and I, 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 they've looked worse than that to me. Where, where are you at with where, where this Canucks team is, where they're trending to this point? Yeah, I think you you you've, you've got a good kind of feel for a good pulse run, and, and that's utter mediocrity, right? That's the least desirable place you want to be in today's NHL. And that's exactly what they're trending towards. Like I it's it's so funny when they come back and they and they win that game against Ottawa and then all of a sudden it's like, all right, oh we're, we're back on. It's like, no, this is this is this is a slight step forward. And actually they've taken a step back if you just watch that entire performance. And so there's so little to build on. I, I think if I was a Canucks fan tuning in every night, there's just so little to actively kind of cheer for and root for. And that, that makes for such a miserable fan experience. <laughs> like, like is, that, is that fair to say? I, I, that's I, how I feel. I, I, say it, I say it every day, just yeah. uh, with a little bit yellier. Mm. A little bit yellier when I say it. Right. Um, are, are there any positives to take right now from, from the Canucks? Well, I, I, I do think, you had a tweet about this yesterday. I do think, like, Demko it will play better. Not that he's been to blame so far, but I think just based on what we know from him, like he will start making more saves regardless of what's happening in front of him. And so I just wonder, like that's something to hold on to in terms of they might start winning a few more games. 
I think the negative spin on that is if that happens, whether people are going to start talking themselves into this team being back on track just because they're winning more of those 3-2 games. Oh, is is there any way out of this that's not this organization belatedly having tried to defy gravity unsuccessfully for 10 years committing to a forward-looking course of action, something more akin to a traditional rebuild? No. No, you have to trade everything, I think. <laughs> Honestly, other than other than, than Hughes and Pedersen, I'd add Demko to that group. But if you know if he if he rebounds here and someone wants to pay a premium for him because he's still a young, really good goalie and they're desperate, I would explore that. But I just don't see a way around this with this group. Like there's so many. It's such an inefficient way of spending in terms of how they've already allocated all their money. And then Alf Horvat is going to come up with an even higher cap hit. It's just an untenable situation, in my opinion, for how you can actually field a cons- like a, a competitive lineup here that has legitimate Stanley Cup aspirations, not just, oh, we might compete for a playoff spot. Yeah. Well, and before you were, you know, uh, a Game Center junkie, uh, a guy who watched games of about everyone around the league, right? Yep. You were a Canucks fan, mm-hmm. right? This weekend in Toronto, Sadin Sadin Luongo going yes. in the Hall of Fame. Um, what did those guys mean to you as you were adopting this sport as uh, as something you just did all the time? Yeah, I mean, the Sedins helped me really fall in love with hockey, right? I was kind of late to the game. Like, I, I watched a little bit during the West Coast Express era, but I didn't really fully dive into hockey until kind of around that late 2000s, early 2010s era of the Canucks and just the way they played. It was so unique compared to everything else you saw on, on the ice that it really hooked me. And so the Sedins were like a very formative experience for me in my early 20s as someone who like really decided to make a living of this and think about hockey on a deeper level and kind of convince me to just fully embrace the sport. And so, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be emotional. It's cool to see them kind of recognize for that finally and for well-deserving for all of their accomplishments. And so they're so unique and, and I, I was going to say one of a kind, but I guess, I guess two of a kind would apply more here <laughs> aptly, but yeah, no, they're pretty cool. As for Luongo, um, you know, I'd like to thank him for inviting me every year into his fantasy football league. That's, that's kind of my, uh, my most <laughs> lasting memory of him. And I hope that continues for many years to come. <laughs> Dimitri, thanks for joining us, man. Much appreciated. Have a good show. Absolutely. Thanks, pal. So we got a couple minutes. We're going to just finish off here. And I want to talk about the legacy of 2010-11 really fast because a couple of years ago, a kid named Kent Johnson from Port Moody, the wizard of Port Moody, got taken fifth overall by the Columbus Blue Jackets and playing pretty well at the NHL level at the moment, even though that team is struggling. Uh, this year and later on in this year, or, or late January, you'll be able to see these guys when they roll through for the big prospects game. But Connor Bedard, we all know Connor Bedard. He's going to go first overall. Almost certainly, although Adam Fantilli's got the size and the pace, and, and I, I look, it could always get interesting, but I, I think it's going to be Bedard number one with a bullet. So does everyone else. Another Vancouver kid, This he, him, he's from North Van. You've also got another Abbotsford kid, uh, probably in that in the mix to go top 10, maybe could even sneak up, up a little bit higher, depending on how the Winnipeg Ice closed the season here, in Zach Benson. But over the course of the past week out in Surrey... There's been U-17 tournaments, the Five Nations, and on and on uh, occurring. And there's another Vancouver kid, another one, 
And this one has direct Canucks ties. His name's Macklin Celebrini. Yes, he's related to Rick Celebrini, the former Canucks medical guy and and uh, the former Golden State Warriors medical guy. And over the course of the past 10 days, Buzz has been really beginning to congeal around Mac Celebrini as a kid who's got a real shot might even be the prohibitive leader at this juncture, way too early, of course, of being the first overall pick in 2024. So there's a real chance that this city, our dear city, will have a top five pick, 2021, two top tens, 2023, including first overall, and then back-to-back first overall picks in the NHL entry draft, Coming from the city of Vancouver. Coming exactly 12 years after, 12, 13 years after, the club made that indelible run in 2011. These kids would have been six, five. We know that Bedard took the 2011 Stanley Cup final loss hard. This is the legacy of the City Twins. The most skilled crop of young forward prospects to ever come out of our fair city. We're children watching that team play, that 2010-11 team play. And the echoes of that team are going to impact the NHL for a long time. Not just because BX's got a chance to be an iconic broadcaster. Not just because Manny Malhotra is going to be an assistant uh, head coach, excuse me, one day. Not just because we may well live in a world down the line where there's a general manager named Sedin and another one named Luongo. But also because the way that team played, the way that team captivated, the attention of young people, young hockey fans in our market at the time they were good could result in this city producing back-to-back first overalls for the first time in the history of Vancouver over the course of the next 18 months. It's exciting. There's something in the water in Vancouver right now. We saw it on full display out in Surrey over the past 10 days. The hockey world has taken notice. And to me, as we prepare to see the Twins go into the hall, that's sticking out to me as a big part of their legacy as well. All right, that does it for Canucks Talk today. I'm Thomas Drance. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks to Mike Gillis, Dan Murphy, and Dmitry Filipovich for joining us on a stacked show. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Don't miss it. You're listening to Sportsnet 650.